0: Welcome to Classic Stories About Us. In this podcast, you can sit back, relax, and take a journey with me as we explore the timeless magic of classic stories brought to life. Hello. Today on the podcast, we're continuing with the reading of P.G. Woodhouse's. Righto, Jeeves. There's only one way to read the title of this hilarious book, and I think that's it. Anyway, discovering P.G. Woodhouse's material has been a revelation. His way with language is just something else. Here it is chapters two through four of this delightful book. Righto, Jeeves. By P.G. Woodhouse Chapter 2 What-oh, Gussie! I said. You couldn't have told it from my manner, but I was feeling more than a bit nonplussed. The spectacle before me was enough to nonpluss anyone. I mean to say, this Thinknottle, as I remembered him, was the sort of shy, shrinking goop who might have been expected to shake like an aspen, if invited to so much as a social Saturday afternoon at the vicarage. And yet, here he was, if one could credit one's senses, about to take part in a fancy dress ball, a form of entertainment notoriously a testing experience for the toughest. And he was attending that fancy dress ball, mark you, not like every other well-bred Englishman, as a Pierrot, but as Mephistopheles, this involving, as I need scarcely stress, "'Not only scarlet tights, but a pretty frightful false beard. "'Rummy, you'll admit. "'However, one masks one's feelings. "'I betrayed no vulgar astonishment, "'but, as I say, wattowed with civil nonchalance.' "'He grinned through the fungus, rather sheepishly, I thought. "'Oh, hello, Bertie. "'Long time since I saw you. "'Have a spot? "'No, thanks. I must be off in a minute.' "'I just came round to ask Jeeves how he thought I looked. "'How do you think I look, Bertie?' "'Well, the answer to that, of course, was perfectly foul. "'But we Worcesters are men of tact "'and have a nice sense of the obligations of a host. "'We do not tell old friends beneath our roof-tree "'that they are an offence to the eyesight. "'I evaded the question. "'I hear you're in London,' I said carelessly. "'Oh, yes. "'Must be here since you came up. "'Oh, yes.' And now you're off for an evening's pleasure. He shuddered a bit. He had, I noticed, a hunted air. Pleasure. Aren't you looking forward to this rout or revel? Oh, I suppose it'll be all right, he said in a toneless voice. Anyway, I ought to be off, I suppose. The thing starts round about eleven. I told my cab to wait. Will you see if it's there, Jeeves? Very good, sir. There was something of a pause after the door had closed, a certain constraint. I mixed myself a beaker, while Gussie, a glutton for punishment, stared at himself in the mirror. Finally, I decided that it would be best to let him know that I was abreast of his affairs. It might be that it would ease his mind to confide in a sympathetic man of experience. I have generally found, with those under the influence, that what they want more than anything is the listening ear. Well, Gussie, old leper, I said, I've been hearing all about you. Eh? This little trouble of yours, Jeeves has told me everything. He didn't seem any too braced. It's always difficult to be sure, of course, when a chap has dug himself in behind a Mephistopheles beard, but I fancy he flushed a trifle. I wish Jeeves wouldn't go guessing all over the place. It was supposed to be confidential. I could not permit this tone. Dishing up the dirt to the young master can scarcely be described as gassing all over the place, I said, with a touch of rebuke. Anyway, there it is. I know all. And I should like to begin, I said, sinking my personal opinion that the female in question was a sloppy pest in my desire to buck and encourage, by saying that Madeline Bassett is a charming girl, a winner, and just the sort for you. You don't know her? Certainly I know her. What beats me is how you ever got in touch. Where did you meet? She was staying at a place near mine in Lincolnshire the week before last. Yes, but even so, I didn't know you called on the neighbours. I don't. I met her out for a walk with her dog. The dog had got a thorn in its foot, and when she tried to take it out, it snapped at her. So, of course, I had to rally round. You extracted the thorn? Yes. And fell in love at first sight? Yes. They'll dash it, with a thing like that to give you a send-off. Why didn't you cash in immediately? I hadn't the nerve. What happened? We talked for a bit. What about? Oh, birds. Birds? What birds? The birds that happened to be hanging around. And the scenery. And all that sort of thing. And she said she was going to London and asked me to look her up if I was ever there. And even after that, you didn't so much as press her hand? Of course not. "'Well, I mean, it looked as though there was no more to be said. "'If a chap is such a rabbit that he can't get action "'when he's handed the thing on a plate, "'his case would appear to be pretty hopeless. "'Nevertheless, I reminded myself that this non-starter and I "'had been at school together. "'One must make an effort for an old-school friend. "'Oh, well,' I said. "'We must see what can be done. "'Things may brighten. "'At any rate, you will be glad to learn "'that I am behind you in this enterprise.' You have Bertram Wooster in your corner, Gussie. Thanks, old man. And Jeeves, of course, which is the thing that really matters. I don't mind admitting that I winced. He meant no harm, I suppose. But I'm bound to say that this tactless speech nettled me not a little. People are always nettling me like that, giving me to understand, I mean to say, that in their opinion, Bertram Wooster is a mere cipher, and that the only member of the household with brains and resources is Jeeves. It jars on me. And tonight, it jarred on me more than usual, because I was feeling pretty dashed fed with Jeeves. Over that matter of the mess jacket, I mean. True, I had forced him to climb down, quelling him, as described, with the quiet strength of my personality. But I was still a trifle shirty at his having brought the thing up at all. It seemed to me that what Jeeves wanted was the iron hand. And what is he doing about it? I inquired stiffly. He's been giving the position of affairs a lot of thought. He has, has he? It's on his advice that I'm going to this dance. Why? She is going to be there. In fact, it was she who sent me the ticket of invitation. And Jeeves considered— And why not as a Pierrot? I said, taking up the point which had struck me before. Why this break with a grand old tradition? He particularly wanted me to go as Mephistopheles. I started. He did, did he? He specifically recommended that definite costume? Yes. Ha! Eh? Nothing. Just ha. And I'll tell you why I said ha. Here was Jeeves, making heavy weather about me wearing a perfectly ordinary white mess jacket, a garment not only too skilly de chic but absolutely de rigueur, and in the same breath, as you might say, inciting Gussie Finknottle to be a blot on the London scene in scarlet tights, Ironical, what? One looks askance at this sort of in-and-out running. What has he got against Pierrot's? I don't think he objects to Pierrot's as Pierrot's, but in my case, he thought a Pierrot wouldn't be adequate. I don't follow that. He said that the costume of Pierrot, while pleasing to the eye, lacked the authority of the Mephistopheles costume. I still don't get it. But it's a matter of psychology, he said. There was a time when a remark like that would have had me snookered. But long association with Jeeves has developed the Worcester vocabulary considerably. Jeeves has always been a whale for the psychology of the individual, and I now follow him like a bloodhound when he snaps it out of the bag. Oh, psychology? Yes, Jeeves is a great believer in the moral effect of clothes. He thinks I might be emboldened in a striking costume like this. He said... "'A pirate chief would be just as good. "'In fact, a pirate chief was his first suggestion, "'but I objected to the boots.' "'I saw his point. "'There is enough sadness in life "'without having fellows like Gussie Finknottle "'going about in sea-boots. "'And are you emboldened?' "'Well, to be absolutely accurate, Bertie, old man, "'no.' "'A gust of compassion shook me. "'After all, though we had lost touch a bit of recent years,' This man and I had once thrown inked darts at each other. "'Gussie,' I said. "'Take an old friend's advice and don't go within a mile of this binge.' "'But it's my last chance of seeing her. "'She's off tomorrow to stay with some people in the country. "'Besides, you don't know.' "'Don't know what?' "'That this idea of Jeeves's won't work. "'I feel a most frightful chump now, yes, "'but who can say whether that will not pass off "'when I get into a mob of other people in fancy dress?' I had the same experience as a child, one year during the Christmas festivities. They dressed me up as a rabbit, and the shame was indescribable. Yet, when I got to the party and found myself surrounded by scores of other children, many in costumes even ghastlier than my own, I perked up amazingly, joined freely in the revels, and was able to eat so hearty a supper that I was sick twice in the cab coming home. What I mean is, you can't tell in cold blood. I weighed this. It was specious, of course. And you can't get away from it that, fundamentally, Jeeves' idea is sound. In a striking costume like Mephistopheles, I might quite easily pull off something pretty impressive. Colour does make a difference. Look at newts. During the courting season, the male newt is brilliantly coloured. It helps him a lot. But you aren't a male newt. I wish I were. Do you know how a male newt proposes, Bertie? He just stands in front of the female nude, vibrating his tail and bending his body in a semicircle. I could do that on my head. No, you wouldn't find me grousing if I were a male nude. But if you were a male nude, Madeleine Bassett wouldn't look at you. Not with the eye of love, I mean. She would, if she were a female nude. But she isn't a female nude. No, but suppose she was. Well, if she was, you wouldn't be in love with her. Yes, I would if I were a male newt. A slight throbbing about the temples told me that this discussion had reached saturation point. Well, anyway, I said, coming down to hard facts and cutting out all this visionary stuff about vibrating tails and whatnot, the salient point that emerges is that you are booked to appear at a fancy dress ball. And I tell you out of my riper knowledge of fancy dress balls, Gussie, that you won't enjoy yourself. It isn't a question of enjoying yourself. I wouldn't go. I must go. I keep telling you. She's off to the country tomorrow. I gave it up. So be it, I said. Have it your own way. Yes, Jeeves? Mr. Finknottle's cab, sir. Ah, the cab, eh? Your cab, Gussie. Oh, the cab? Oh, right. Of course. Yes, rather. Thanks, Jeeves. Well, so long, Bertie and giving me the sort of weak smile Roman gladiators used to give the emperor before entering the arena, Gussie trickled off. And I turned to Jeeves. The moment had arrived for putting him in his place, and I was all for it. It was a little difficult to know how to begin, of course. I mean to say, while firmly resolved to tick him off, I didn't want to gash his feelings too deeply. Even when displaying the iron hand, We Worcesters like to keep the thing fairly matey. However, on consideration, I saw that there was nothing to be gained by trying to lead up to it gently. It is never any use beating about the bee. Jeeves, I said, may I speak frankly? Certainly, sir. What I have to say may wound you. Not at all, sir. Well then, I have been having a chat with Mr. Flinknottle, and he has been telling me about this Mephistopheles scheme of yours. Yes, sir? Now, let me get it straight. If I follow your reasoning correctly, you think that, stimulated by being upholstered throughout in scarlet tights, Mr. Fingnottle, on encountering the adored object, will vibrate his tail and generally let himself go with a whoop? I am of opinion that he will lose much of his normal diffidence, sir. I don't agree with you, Jeeves. No, sir? No. In fact, not to put too fine a point upon it— I consider that of all the dashed, silly, driveling ideas I ever heard in my puff, this is the most blithering and futile. It won't work. Not a chance. All you have done is to subject Mr. Fingnottle to the nameless horrors of a fancy dress ball for nothing. And this is not the first time this sort of thing has happened. To be quite candid, Jeeves, I have frequently noticed before now a tendency or disposition on your part to become... What's the word? I could not say, sir. Eloquent? No, it's not eloquent. Elusive? No, it's not elusive. It's on the tip of my tongue. It begins with an E and means being a jolly sight too clever. Elaborate, sir? That is the exact word I was after. Too elaborate, Jeeves. That is what you are frequently prone to become. Your methods are not simple, not straightforward. You cloud the issue with a lot of fancy stuff that is not of the essence. All that Gussie needs is the elder brotherly advice of a seasoned man of the world. So what I suggest is that from now onward... You leave this case to me. Very good, sir. You lay off and devote yourself to your duties about the home. Very good, sir. I shall no doubt think of something quite simple and straightforward, yet perfectly effectively along. I will make a point of seeing Gussie tomorrow. Very good, sir. Right-ho, Jeeves. But on the morrow, all those telegrams started coming in and I confess that for twenty-four hours I didn't give the poor chap a thought, having problems of my own to contend with. Chapter Three The first of the telegrams arrived shortly after noon, and Jeeves brought it in with a before-luncheon snifter. It was from my aunt Dahlia, operating from Market Snodsbury, a small town of sorts, a mile or two along the main road as you leave her country seat. It ran as follows. Come at once, Travers." And when I say it puzzled me like the Dickens, I am understating it, if anything. As mysterious a communication, I considered, as was ever flashed over the wires. I studied it in a profound reverie for the best part of two dry martinis and a dividend. I read it backwards. I read it forwards. As a matter of fact, I have a sort of recollection of even smelling it but it still baffled me. Consider the facts, I mean. It was only a few hours since this aunt and I had parted, after being in constant association for nearly two months. And yet, here she was, with my farewell kiss still lingering on her cheek, so to speak, pleading for another reunion. Bertram Wooster is not accustomed to this gluttonous appetite for his society. Ask anyone who knows me, and they will tell you that after two months of my company... What the normal person feels is that that will about do for the present. Indeed, I have known people who couldn't stick it out for more than a few days. Before sitting down to the well-cooked, therefore, I sent this reply. Perplexed. Explain. Bertie. To this, I received an answer during the after-luncheon sleep. What on earth is there to be perplexed about, ass? Come at once. Travers. Three cigarettes and a couple of turns about the room, and I had my response ready. How do you mean, come at once? Regards, Bertie. I append the comeback. I mean, come at once, you maddening half-wit. What did you think I meant? Come at once or expect an aunt's curse first post tomorrow. Love, Travers. I then dispatched the following message, wishing to get everything quite clear. When you say... Come, do you mean, come to Brinkley Court? And when you say, at once, do you mean, at once? Fogged, at a loss, all the best, Bertie. I sent this one off on my way to the drones, where I spent a restful afternoon throwing cards into a top hat with some of the better element. Returning in the evening hush, I found the answer waiting for me. Yes, 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 yes. It doesn't matter whether you understand or not. You just come at once, as I tell you. And for heaven's sake, stop this back chat. Do you think I am made of money that I can afford to send you telegrams every ten minutes? Stop being a fathead and come immediately. Love, Traverse. It was at this point that I felt the need of getting a second opinion. I pressed the bell. Jeeves, I said. A V-shaped rumminess has manifested itself from the direction of Worcestershire. Read these, I said. "'handing him the papers in the case. "'He scanned them. "'What do you make of it, Jeeves?' "'I think Mrs. Travers wishes you to come at once, sir.' "'You gather that too, do you?' "'Yes, sir.' "'I put the same construction on the thing. "'But why, Jeeves? "'Dash it all! "'She's just had nearly two months of me.' "'Yes, sir.' "'And many people consider the medium dose for an adult two days.' Yes, sir. I appreciate the point you raise. Nevertheless, Mrs. Travers appears very insistent. I think it would be well to acquiesce in her wishes. Pop down, you mean? Yes, sir. Well I certainly can't go at once. I have an important conference at the drones tonight. Pongo Twistleton's birthday party, you remember? Yes, sir. There was a slight pause. You we were both recalling the little unpleasantness that had arisen. I felt obliged to allude to it. You're all wrong about that mess jacket, Jeeves. These things are matters of opinion, sir. When I wore it at the casino at Cannes, beautiful women nudged one another and whispered, Who is he? The code at Continental Casinos is notoriously lax, sir. And when I described it to Pongo last night, he was fascinated. Indeed, sir? So were all the rest of those present. One and all admitted that I had got hold of a good thing, not a dissentient voice. Indeed, sir? I am convinced that you will eventually learn to love this mess-jacket, Jeeves. I fear not, sir. I gave it up. It is never any use trying to reason with Jeeves on these occasions. Pig-headed is the word that springs to the lips. One sighs and passes on. Well, anyway, returning to the agenda, I can't go down to Brinkley Court or anywhere else yet a while. That's final. I'll tell you what, Jeeves. Give me form and pencil, and I'll wire her that I'll be with her sometime next week, or the week after. Dash it all. She ought to be able to hold out without me for a few days. It only requires willpower. Yes, sir. right her then. i wire. Expect me tomorrow fortnight. Or words to some such effect. That ought to meet the case. Then, if you will toddle round the corner and send it off, that will be that. Very good, sir. And so the long day wore on, till it was time for me to dress for Pongo's party. Pongo had assured me, while chatting of the affair on the previous night, that this birthday binge of his was to be on a scale calculated to stagger humanity, and I must say, I have participated in less fruity functions. It was well after four when I got home, and by that time, I was about ready to turn in. I can just remember groping for the bed and crawling into it, and it seemed to me that the lemon had scarcely touched the pillow before I was aroused by the sound of the door opening. I was barely ticking over, but I contrived to raise an eyelid. Is that my tea, Jeeves? No, sir. It is Mrs. Travers. And a moment later there was a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and the relative had crossed the threshold at 50 mph under her own steam. Chapter Four. It has been well said of Bertram Worcester that, while no one views his flesh and blood with a keener and more remorselessly critical eye, he is nevertheless a man who delights in giving credit where credit is due. And if you have followed these memoirs of mine with the proper care, you will be aware that I have frequently had occasion to emphasize the fact that Aunt Dahlia is all right. She is the one, if you remember, who married old Tom Travers, en seconde nonce, as I believe the expression is, the year Blue Bottle won the Cambridgeshire, and once induced me to write an article on what the well-dressed man is wearing for that paper she runs, Milady's Boudoir. She is a large, genial soul, with whom it is a pleasure to hobnob. In her spiritual makeup, is none of that subtle gosh-awfulness which renders such an exhibit as, say, my Aunt Agatha, the curse of the home counties and a menace to one and all, I have the highest esteem for Aunt Delia, and have never wavered in my cordial appreciation of her humanity, sporting qualities, and general good eggishness. This being so, you may conceive of my astonishment at finding her at my bedside at such an hour. I mean to say, I have stayed at her place many a time and oft, and she knows my habits. She is well aware that until I have had my cup of tea in the morning, I do not receive... This crashing in at a moment when she knew that solitude and repose were of the essence, was scarcely, I could not but feel, the good old form. Besides, what business had she been in London at all? That was what I asked myself. When a conscientious housewife has returned to her home after an absence of seven weeks, one does not expect her to start racing off again the day after her arrival. One feels that she ought to be sticking round, ministering to her husband, conferring with the cook, feeding the cat, combing and brushing the Pomeranian, in a word, staying put. I was more than a little bleary-eyed, but I endeavoured, as far as the fact that my eyelids were more or less glued together would permit, to give her an austere and censorious look. She didn't seem to get it. "'Wake up, Bertie, you old ass!' she cried, in a voice that hit me between the eyebrows and went out at the back of my head. "'If Aunt Dahlia has a fault,' It is that she is apt to address a -a vis-a-vis as if he were somebody half a mile away, whom she had observed riding over hounds. A throwback, no doubt, to the time when she counted the day lost that was not spent in shivvying some unfortunate fox over the countryside. I gave her another of the austere and censorious, and this time it registered. All the effect it had, however, was to cause her to descend to personalities. Don't blink at me in that obscene way, she said. I wonder, Bertie she proceeded, gazing at me as I should imagine Gussie would have gazed at some newt that was not up to sample. If you have the faintest conception how perfectly loathsome you look. A cross between an orgy scene in the movies and some low form of pond life. I suppose you were out on the tiles last night? I attended a social function, yes, I said coldly. Pongo Twistleton's birthday party. I couldn't let Pongo down. Noblesse oblige. Well, get up and dress. I felt I could not have heard her aright. Get up and dress? Yes. I turned on the pillow with a little moan. And at this juncture, Jeeves entered with the vital oolong. I clutched at it like a drowning man at a straw hat. A deep sip or two, and I felt, I won't say restored, because a birthday party like Pongal Twistletons isn't a thing you get restored after with a mere mouthful of tea, but sufficiently the old Bertram to be able to bend the mind on this awful thing which had come upon me. And the more I bent same, the less could I grasp the trend of the scenario. What is this, Aunt Delia? I inquired. It looks to me like tea, was her response. But you know best, you're drinking it. If I hadn't been afraid of spilling the healing brew, I have little doubt that I should have given an impatient gesture. I know I felt like it. Not the contents of this cup. oh! this. You're barging in and telling me to get up and dress and all that rot. I've barged in, as you call it, because my telegrams seem to produce no effect. And I told you to get up and dress because I want you to get up and dress. I've come to take you back with me. I like your crust, worrying that you would come next year, whenever it was. You're coming now. I've got a job for you. But I don't want a job. What you want, my lad, and what you're going to get are two very different things. That is man's work for you at Brinkley Court. Be ready to the last button in twenty minutes. But I can't possibly be ready to any buttons in twenty minutes. I'm feeling awful, she seemed to consider. Yes, she said. I suppose it's only humane to give you a day or two to recover. All right, then. I shall expect you on the thirtieth at the latest. But dash it, what is all this? How do you mean a job? Why a job? What sort of a job? I'll tell you if you'll only stop talking for a minute. It's quite an easy, pleasant job. You will enjoy it. Have you heard of Market Snodsbury Grammar School? Never. It's a grammar school at Market Snodsbury. I told her, a little frigidly, that I had divined as much. Well, how was I to know that a man with a mind like yours would grasp it so quickly? She protested. All right, then. Market Snodsbury Grammar School is, as you have guessed, the grammar school at Market Snodsbury. I'm one of the governors. You mean one of the governesses? I don't mean one of the governesses. Listen, ass, there was a board of governors at Eton, wasn't there? Very well. So there is at Market Snodsby Grammar School, and I'm a member of it. And they left the arrangements for the summer prize-giving to me. This prize-giving takes place on the last, or 31st day of this month. Have you got that clear? I took another oars of the life-saving and inclined my head. Even after a Pongle Twistleton birthday party, I was capable of grasping simple facts like these. I follow you, yes. I see the point you are trying to make, certainly. Market, Snodsbury, Grammar School, Board of Governors, prize giving, quite. But what's it got to do with me? You're going to give away the prizes. I goggled. Her words did not appear to make sense. They seemed the mere aimless vapouring of an aunt who has been sitting out in the sun without a hat. Me? You, I goggled again. You don't mean me. I mean you in person, I goggled a third time. You're pulling my leg. I am not pulling your leg. Nothing would induce me to touch your beastly leg. The vicar was to have officiated, but when I got home I found a letter from him saying that he had strained a fetlock and must scratch his nomination. You can imagine the state I was in. I telephoned all over the place. Nobody would take it on. And then suddenly I thought of you. I decided to check all this rot at the outset. Nobody is more eager to oblige deserving aunts than Bertram Worcester, but there are limits, and sharply defined limits at that. So you think I'm going to strew prizes at this bally-do-the-boys hall of yours? I do. And make a speech? Exactly. I laughed derisively. For goodness sake, don't start gargling now. This is serious. I was laughing. Oh, were you? Well, I'm glad to see you taking it in this merry spirit. Derisively, I explained. I won't do it. That's final. I simply will not do it. You will do it, young Betty, or never darken my doors again. And you know what that means? No more of Anatole's dinners for you. A strong shudder shook me. She was alluding to her chef, that superb artist, a monarch of his profession. Unsurpassed, nay, unequalled, at dishing up the raw material so that it melted in the mouth of the ultimate consumer, Anatole had always been a magnet that drew me to Brinkley Court, with my tongue hanging out. Many of my happiest moments... It had been those which I had spent champing this great man's roasts and ragouts, and the prospect of being barred from digging into them in the future was a numbing one. "'No,' I say, "'dash it!' "'I thought that would rattle you, greedy young pig.' "'Greedy young pigs have nothing to do with it,' I said, with a touch of hauteur. "'One is not a greedy young pig because one appreciates the cooking of a genius.' "'Well, I will say I like it myself,' conceded the relative. "'But not another bite of it do you get "'if you refuse to do this simple, easy, pleasant job. "'No, not so much as another sniff. "'So put that in your 12-inch cigarette holder and smoke it.' "'I began to feel like some wild thing caught in a snare. "'But why do you want me? "'I mean, what am I? "'Ask yourself that. "'I often have. "'I mean to say, I'm not the type.' You have to have some terrific nib to give away prizes. I seem to remember when I was at school, it was generally a prime minister or somebody. Ah, but that was at Eton. At Market Snodsbury, we aren't nearly so choosy. Anybody in spats impresses us. Why don't you get Uncle Tom? Uncle Tom? Well, why not? He's got spats. Bertie, she said, I will tell you why not Uncle Tom. You remember me losing all that money at Baccarat, can? Oh, very shortly, I shall have to saddle up to Tom and break the news to him. If, right after that, I ask him to put on lavender gloves and a topper and distribute the prizes at Market Snodsbury Grammar School, there will be a divorce in the family. He would pin a note to the pincushion and be off like a rabbit. No, my lad, you're for it. So you may as well make the best of it. But Aunt Dahlia, listen to reason, I assure you. You've got hold of a wrong man. I'm hopeless at a game like that. Ask Jeeves about the time I got lugged in to address a girl's school. I made the most colossal ass of myself. And I confidently anticipate that you will make an equally colossal ass of yourself on the 31st of this month. That's why I want you. The way I look at it is that, as the thing is bound to be a frost anyway, one may as well get a hearty laugh out of it. I shall enjoy seeing you distribute those prizes, Bertie. Well, I won't keep you, as no doubt you want to do your Swedish exercises. I shall expect you in a day or two. And with these heartless words, she beetled off, leaving me a prey to the gloomiest emotions. What with the natural reaction after Pongo's party and this stunning blow, it is not too much to say that the soul was seared. And I was still writhing in the depths when the door opened, and Jeeves appeared. Mister Finknottle, to see you, sir, he announced. You've been listening to classic stories about us. My name's Atah Otigba. See you next time.